Last week in Genesis 16, we, we noted that sin had taken hold of Abram and Sarai's household. They had contested the promise of a child by interfering in their own way, by Sarai and then Abram taking to himself Hagar and having Ishmael. That, that what was designed by God as marriage between a man and a woman had been horribly distorted in their quest to secure God's promises. And so the promises of God were contested by them. Their sin resulted in hostility in their homestead. And Hagar had fled and was sent back. So we, we've left Abram and Sarah with this, this presence of Ishmael and Hagar and Sarai and, and this uh, uh, conflict, this contest within their household. They had abandoned God's method by which he would secure his promises. I'd like to ask you this question as kind of a framework for thinking through what we're reading about in seven, chapter 17. And the difficulty is, is our familiarity with this. And we know what's going to happen. But think for a moment. Now think for a moment of, of what we just heard about in chapter 16 with regard to the hostility to, to the sinful condition that, that existed within the household of Abram and Sarai. That... that They'd given in to doubt and, and to disobedience. And time progresses, and I would like you to think about the next chapter of history, the next chapter that is being revealed to us, and I'd like to, you to think about it in this way and ask you this question. What do they deserve? What do they deserve? They've wrongly abandoned God's method. They've lived with doubt and disobedience. What should his next revelation to them be? Compared to what Abram had, had done in Egypt, you know, in Egypt he'd lied to save his life and to secure the promise. Now he's done something far worse. He's, he's transgressed the intimate bond of, of a marriage relationship. Let me ask you this. How would you write the next chapter? What would be the next thing you want people to know when there's sin within the covenant community. And you want to show the fact that God is the living God and He deals with sinners. What do they deserve? What do they deserve? Now there are some who mistakenly entertain the idea that, that the Old Testament is, is about a God who is judgmental and his, who's just waiting for sinners to slip up so He can pour out His judgment upon them. If the next chapter was yours to write, what would you focus on? What would you focus on?
If people's idea and, and if our notion of, of God in the Old Testament is that, that He's somewhat heavy-handed, that, that, that there are times when, when His judgment seems unpredictable and unmanageable and, and overwhelming, that, that we think that, that grace is all about the New Testament and, and law is all about the Old Testament, and the way that God deals with people in the Old Testament is harsh and, and difficult and, and onerous. How does that fit with this transition from chapter 16 where there's disobedience and doubt and difficulty in the covenant household with a transition to chapter 17? This morning, the the title of this morning's message is The the Conquest of the Covenant God. And, And If I would hear that, not knowing what I'd written in the sermon, perhaps it would be, God's going to go get these people. Because that's what we expect of the covenant God. Have your way with those sinners. But the wonder of our text is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful covenant conquest. A conquest of grace. Of a grace that's going to overcome the sin and the doubt and the disobedience and the difficulty within the household of Abram and Sarai. This is the conquest of the covenant God. A conquest of grace. So let's consider these points from, from God's Word this morning as we, we consider this conquest of the covenant God in grace, of how He comes to His people. First of all, the grace revealed. Secondly, the grace that summons. And thirdly, the fact that there are no alternatives. There are no alternatives allowed. First of all, the grace revealed. And, and we need to acknowledge this grace needs to be revealed. We need God's Word to show us this. We will not see, we will not understand this without the revelation of God. You're not going to intuit this. This is why I could ask those questions because I know that's how I would answer those questions. How I would answer this if I saw the disobedience of Abram and Sarah, my natural inclination, what we would intuit is God, go get them because they don't deserve this. They've had it so clearly laid out for them. Why can't they walk by faith? But this is a struggle that you and I have in our lives. And oh, the wonder of what God is revealing. When God comes to them, 13 years have passed, God comes to them. And now what does He say? He comes and He reveals Himself to them. Oh, the wonder of our gracious God who comes to us and says, this is my conquest. This is my fight. This is my battle that I am engaged in. And He reveals who He is. I am God Almighty. God asserts His power in this circumstance. You see, this was the problem for Abram and Sarai. The promise is so extreme and so delayed and so distant and so beyond what we can comprehend and so far from what we would perceive that God has to reveal this to us. The problem for Abram and Sarai was they thought God wasn't almighty. That God needed their help. That they could, they could offer some form of a, of a finite contribution that would secure the promise. 
Because God had promised to them the land and the offspring. But the question that arises, does He have the power to deliver on His promises? Does He have the power to deliver on His promises? This is what God's people so wrongfully contest so frequently. This is convicting of us, of me. Does God have the power to make happen what He has promised? (coughs) Abram and Sarai doubted it. No, let's try our own methods. This is so attractive to us. It takes the church by storm. I don't know if, if you... The, the young people, I, I know you don't remember, but some of the older people do. There was a man who, who was, let me just say this, a bit before my time. <laughs> Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral. But the trouble is, is that he had such, such amazing statements that stick in my head that it's problematic. It's like song lyrics that, that you can remember them later on. And, and it was so attractive. He developed this, this ornate system of, of self-help. And he, he had this phrase, if it's going to be, it's up to me. So Christian, envision what you want God to do in your life. Cling to that by faith. And if it's going to be, it's up to me. Make it happen. Or inch by inch, life's a cinch. And all these ideas. I have to take the initiative. It's the gospel of self-help. And it ends up being no gospel at all. All it is is a Christianized psychology of self-improvement. And here is God. He says, I am, not you, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I am God Almighty, not you. How different God is to all the gospel of self-help. And He asserts His promise as He reminds Abram, as He he comes to visit him in this next episode of His revelation. It's that next visitation that we have. And rather than condemn them, He reasserts His power. I am God Almighty. My power is what is behind my promise and my purpose. Trust me. Abram and Sarah, you did what you thought I needed help with. But my promise is damaged. My promise is damaged. And my purpose is denied by your disobedience. Oh, the wonder of this gracious revelation that God comes to a disobedient, doubting Difficult situation and he reasserts his power. My promise of the provision of offspring will happen, will be absolutely fulfilled because I am God Almighty. That's the grace that is being revealed. A God who comes to us in our brokenness and in our doubts and in our difficulties 
and in our disobedience. And he says, I am God Almighty, you're not. And to establish the certainty of God's promise and the strength of His power to accomplish His purpose and to fulfill His promise, God renames Abram and He renames Sarai. Grace is is so wonderfully revealed in the power and the promise of God. And in, in the fact that he, he takes their names and he, he knows their difficulty and He asserts His power by giving Abraham a, a name like Abraham, father of multitudes. Uh, uh, Abraham means exalted father. The, the name Abraham means father of multitudes. Now imagine that. When, when, and one commentator has, has said this with regard, I think his name was Barnhouse, and, and he talked about this. Imagine that when, when in, in that culture where Abraham was, he, he would have these caravans coming from all different places. And, and so the responsibility abided that, that they would open their, their tents and their dwellings and, and show hospitality to those who were traveling through the area. And the, as introductions go, they would tell each other their names. And, and now Abraham has to give the name Abraham. And it would be known, father of multitudes. And they'd be, oh, they'd see all of his possessions. This must be a, an amazing man. How many children do you have? You're the father of multitudes. Oh, I don't have any. What a shock that name is. How foreign it is. So is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is it that you're saved? How is it that you're, you're bearing the name of Christ? Isn't that the wonder that, that we have? If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. But what do people see? They see a doubter. They see a disobedient person. They see someone who has difficulty in his life. And, and you say you're going to heaven? How can that be? And it has to be because of this gospel. Because of this grace. Because God is almighty. I am God Almighty. Grace is so wonderfully revealed in this name that you have as Christian. It's to be trusted. Isn't that the amazing reality of being united to Christ? That that there's a power there. There's the power of His resurrection to, to make those who are dead alive. And that's the promise of the resurrection that that in Jesus Christ, in in His accomplishment, there is power for you who are dead in your trespasses and sins. There's a power by which you live your life that the world knows nothing about and that we would not intuit and we can't come to by all of creation. But we need God's Word to reveal to us, I am God Almighty who gives you life and who secures you life and who promises you life and who will fulfill that purpose of life in you. Oh, the grace that is revealed in this transition from 16 to 17 and what God is revealing to us here in His character. God Almighty, my purpose will stand and all the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Wonderful grace. Matchless grace. This is the conquest of that covenant God who comes to you this morning and says, you, wherever you are, 
whoever you are. I, by my power, by the work of my Spirit, with my word, with my grace, with the work and accomplishment of Jesus Christ, can give you life. As certainly as He can secure children for Abraham, He can secure life for you, a sinner. There is no other God. That's the grace revealed in the conquest of this covenant God. But secondly, secondly, there's the grace that is summoned. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It's not therefore, it's coordinated, it's combined, it's put together most intimately. Walk before me and be blameless because of who I am. The idea here is this, this reciprocal presence that, that now God is showing us who He is. Now live in the wonder of that presence. Live before my face. Live uh, a quorum Deo. There's a devotional booklet. It's called Table Talk. They're on the, the back uh, a rack there if, if you're interested. But they always have this, this portion every day. Quorum Deo. What does it mean? To live before God's face. How do you apply this? How do you live differently in light of this? The very literal meaning of this is, is God says to Abram, live before my face. Put all your paths under my watchful care. Not so that I can get you when you trip up, but I can direct you and lead you. Walking is about your course in life, about the direction you're going. And God moves wonderfully here from the promise of the certainty of who He is to a lifestyle that reflects who your God is. There is such an important order to establish here that it always flows from who God is and what He has done that we need to reflect. We need to reflect and show in our lifestyle. When I started here a couple years or a few years ago, it is now, I, I introduced two really important words that, that in my previous charges I, I never got around to, to identifying, but they're so important for us to understand. It's the indicative. The indicative is, is a statement of the fact, a statement of the way things are. You can think of it as an, as an indication of what is true, what is real. It's a fact or a truth. That's the indicative. And that is frequently in the, uh, in the epistles of Paul what he sets out first. So, for instance, in Ephesians or in Romans, Romans, particularly in the first 11 chapters, he's, he's saying what is. What are the facts? What is the truth? That we're dead, that, that Christ has made us alive, <clears throat> and that we're bound together with him by faith. But from that indicative flow the imperatives, and the imperative is the language of command. It's the command to do and to accomplish, and to pursue. And it's a statement that tells us, this is what you ought to do. And now we always need to have this biblical order right, that, that <clears throat> Christianity isn't so that we would, would do something, so we would adopt a lifestyle in order to be Christians. Because that puts the imperative before the indicative. The point is, is that we are to, to do something to reflect what God has done. That keeps the indicative flowing through into the imperative. And here's the wonder. Here's the wonder. This gracious summons is the wonder of grace. Grace 
when it's realized that it comes freely, without strings attached, without uh, uh, accomplishment of man, when it is a, a free gift, it brings convictions. It brings change. It changes lifestyles. It keeps the order of those words aright such that God's character and God's promise, when revealed, give a purpose for us to walk in. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Live in my face and be blameless. God's character and promise have a purpose so that we would walk before Him and be upright. That we would show the character of who our God is, of what He has done. Yourself and also your children. Here's the magnificent openness of God. He says, now you. You as believers, Abram has, has believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. As a believer with your children, here is my covenant gracious summons. My promise and my power, let it change you. Let it wash over you. Let it be an enhancement to the way you live and what you pursue in this world. Because I am your God, be my people. And show that to the world. God's grace, His promise, and His power are what need to be changing your lifestyle. Who you are and what you are before God needs to be at work in your life. That's the certainty of this summons, that it flows, that when we, we understand the grace that is revealed to us, God is revealing to us that it's going to change the way we live, the face before whom we walk. So, congregation, let me, let me ask these, these pointed and, and applicable questions because, because they flow from Scripture as they unfold the fact that, that we don't live a particular way to maintain a Christian lifestyle. We, we maintain a Christian lifestyle because God has revealed who He is and because of who He is changes who we are. So think for a moment of God's forgiveness. God forgives your sins freely, completely for the sake of the security of Jesus Christ. Does that reality change the way you approach the forgiveness of others? It needs to. If it doesn't, you haven't grasped fully the certainty of what God has done in forgiving you your sins. You don't forgive to be forgiven you forgive because you are forgiven. That because you realize the extraordinary nature of that grace that has been revealed to you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
You can look at the offenses that others commit against you and can say, in light of what I've done to my Savior, what you have done isn't all that bad. Does it change you? Does it change your lifestyle? Or think about this in terms of your children. Does God's promise of redemption for you and the glory of the covenant is and for your children, for you and your children, does God's promise of redemption for you and your children cause you to train them, to teach them, to show them, to exemplify in their lives the fear of a God who is so gracious and so powerful that He will accomplish His purpose. A God who is so good that without Him in your life, you don't have anything to live for. Do you bolster the reputation of God before your children because He is their only hope? Does it change you? Does the seeking of the face of God's presence cause you to seek every opportunity to worship Him? And here we get on the struggle of worship. It's a heart problem. Do you worship in order to be a Christian? Or do you worship because you are a Christian. Do you seek God's face? Do you seek His presence in worship because it's good for you? Or because you long to glorify Him? It's so difficult with worship. Here I think we, we get to the heart are you here because you have to be? Because you have to be. This is just what Christians do. Dare we say that this is the place where, 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 where God is going to show His face? He's going to take His Word. He's going to plant it deep. That, that God is doing something here. And so I want to be here because I want God to do something with me. Can I push this just a little bit? And I'm not here to harangue. My goal is to help. Because my heart is for you as God's people. When God gives you this opportunity twice, in a day. One theologian rightly has said, you want to know how people's hearts are inclined to God? See how they show up at the second service rather than the first. It's so easy to put the cart before the horse and say, to stand up here and say, you have to be here twice. You don't have to be here twice. God can accomplish His purpose without you. It's not that's why you come. You come 
because of who God is. You come because you know that when He opens His Word, He's going to do something. And He's going to speak something. And you need Him to be doing that in your life. You need your heart trained by Him. God moves wonderfully from promise to lifestyle and says, Here, here's what I do. Love me for it. And from this, He moves, he moves secondly to, to keeping the covenant and, and he, he almost combines together. And we, we need to unpack this a little bit and Lord willing, we can do that next Sunday. He, he, he gives this sign of circumcision and, and how it stands for the covenant and it is the covenant. And, and some way in, in, in God's way of working, he, he puts them so closely together that we need to understand that. So Lord willing, next Sunday we'll, we'll look at the sign of circumcision, what it means for keeping the covenant. But let's close this morning. There are no alternatives. There are no alternatives. Think about this in the terms of the delay that Abram and Sarah have experienced. Now, between chapter 16 and chapter 17, 13 years have passed. Ishmael's a 13-year-old. They, they've been seeing and training Ishmael. And he, he's grown up in the household. And, and it's been 25 years, almost 25 years, since they, they'd first heard the call of God and the, the promises of God that in the seed of Abram there would be a blessing to the nations. And since chapter 12, when God called them out of Ur of the Chaldees, he, He'd brought them to the promised land and He'd given this 25 years of barrenness. Of barrenness. And Abram is a realist. And he recognized there's another human incapacity here. It's well nigh humanly impossible that he and Sarai should have another children. So impossible that he fell on his face and laughed. And again offers Ishmael as an alternative. God, there's a plan B. It's open for you. And God says there are no alternatives. And it's an unbelievable, an unbelievable accomplishment. God once again promises a child and now gives him a name, Isaac. He and his grace will accomplish with his gift with His power, with His purpose, with His promise, will accomplish His plan. The conquest of grace. People of God, the conquest of grace that we are seeing unfolded here in God's Word is a contest, is a battle that we are engaged in. This is what happens within the covenant household that God calls us to recognize and rejoice that He is accomplishing here, that He is conquering hearts, that He is subduing sinners, and He's calling us now today to trust His accomplishment, to trust His grace, to trust His work. This is the framework for ministry and the ministry of grace here in the Reformed Church of Hastings. Our purpose is to know God. Our purpose is to understand His covenant design, a lifestyle that is driven, driven by His promises and His powers. 
That's the indicative that our God is a God who is working here now. He's working with His grace to subdue your souls, to remove those alternatives so that you would say, Lord, it can only be by your accomplishment. Do you see that in our history, that where we are today isn't a result of a whole bunch of committed individuals, is a result that God has been active here within the church of Jesus Christ. That's the indicative of who God is and of what He does. And it propels. It moves us forward. It gives us the imperative. The way we live, the lifestyle we show, is not so that we can get God on our side, but it is because, because like Abram and Sarai, we realize we are completely, completely, absolutely dependent on Him. That we need Him and His work and His accomplishments and His power and His identity and His character in our lives. And He will fulfill His purpose. The conquest of the covenant God to graciously remove every alternative and to show us the certainty of who He is and what He does and to call us now live, live before my face because it's a face of grace and love and mercy and power for those who most desperately need it. For you, for me, for us. Amen. Let's pray together.